Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. From the cyber hub bunker in studio. You're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Hello, cyber geeks, freaks, and people of all walks of life. Welcome to the CISO Talk Podcast. We're a week away from Thanksgiving. We're in the midst of Veteran November. I'm bringing to CISO Talk a familiar face that you saw in the first week, episode number five of our Veteran November. Um, Sirius Vince Scott is joining me. He's the CISO over at STI Tech, which works in the defense space. And that's all we're going to say about that because everything else is secretive. Vince, welcome to back to the podcast. Thanks, James. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. Before we get started, though, folks, if you have not subscribed to our podcast, make sure you do so right now. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit the subscribe and turn on the bell. That way you get notifications of every new episode every single day, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, another episode for the month of November in our Veteran November series. So you don't want to miss that. We're now wrapping up this next week. Uh, my birthday's on Saturday, so in a few days. And um, uh, the week thereafter, I'm bringing in all of the uh, veterans that have impacted me either through my military service or my professional career for a very, very special week of, of, of episodes. So you don't want to miss that next week on Veteran November. It's kind of like a, a, a James Mini Mentor week of veterans <laughs> that have helped me get through my career. So tune into that. You can find all of our podcasts and all of our content on our website at cyberhubpodcast.com. And now without further ado enough about me and enough about the podcast. Now let's talk about Vince. So Vince, um, some people may or may have not heard your episode. That's actually, we're recording this and and we're recording this early on in November. In fact, your episode airs in two hours um, as we speak. So people will know a little bit about you, but, but if you don't mind giving them a little bit of insight into your background, how you got into information security and so forth. Sure, I'm a uh, uh, retired U.S. Navy cryptologist and information warfare officer. I uh, graduated from the academy in uh, 1989 with one of their early computer science degrees and uh, went to sea in ships, primarily as an engineer, uh, uh, for about six years. 
And then uh, I fell into the clutches of uh, the National Security Agency and the National Intelligence Community and, and became a U.S. Navy cryptologist. Uh, most people don't realize that uh, the National Security Agency was actually founded out of the work from the military services uh, during the Second World War, uh, cryptologically attacking the German and Japanese codes. Uh, that's, that's the history of the National Security Agency. We're, we as the United States are a little different because our uh, cryptologic entity actually lives in our Department of Defense. In most company, countries, uh, it lives in the Department of State or their equivalent, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that sort of thing. So uh, I spent the rest of my uh, career in that field. Uh, I got to serve in an extraordinarily uh, uh, diverse set of uh, uh, military commands. I served at uh, U.S. Special Operations Command, U.S. Central Command, immediately following 9-11, uh, U.S. European Command. Uh, I was the deputy commander of uh, Naval Information Operations Command in Georgia and uh, just had a, a fabulous career. Once I uh, retired in 2010, uh, I worked for Oklahoma State's multispectral laboratory and sort of moved into uh, cyber defense. Uh, really sort of assumed the uh, chief security officer role there, uh, worked at the, the multispectral laboratory, was in multiple states, and we had uh, you know sort of a smallish not-for-profit hung off the university. And then I went on to uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and now I'm at STI Tech back in Oklahoma. Your path and and your service, obviously, month of November. Um, you know, we met through the Veteran November Initiative, but yep. it's um, it's awesome um, to see how that's kind of led you uh, down that path. And we've talked in our previous podcast a little bit about that transition. Let's talk a little bit about leadership and team building. So for those that want to um, hear about Vince's kind of transition, you can go to episode number five of our Veteran November um, series on any one of our podcast channels, whether it be Sysotalk, Cyber Podcast, or better yet, go to YouTube and just watch the entire episode. I promise you it's, it's, it's magnificent. And Vince goes into a lot more detail uh, about his military experience. And you guys can really um, get a lot of uh, great insight there. Let's talk a little bit about skills and, and kind of team building and leadership. When you're hiring people today, when you're looking to build your teams as a CISO, what are some of the key qualities you look for and why? Yeah, so when I'm hiring people, I think that the number one requirement for me, and this isn't for everybody, is the willingness to learn. The, the, the truth is, is that this industry changes very quickly. And what we're doing today from a security perspective is not what we were doing in 2012 from a security perspective. And it's certainly not what we were doing from, from 2008, right? So although some people have a, a, a history in the community and have been doing this for a long time, that's not necessarily the definitive quality because things change and things change rapidly. So that ability to learn and gain new skills and change your approach based off of uh, the changing reality on the ground is probably the most important characteristic. Yeah, there's 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 curiosity, definitely the ability to want to be able to adapt is, is critical, right? I think that's sometimes what gives um, veterans a little bit more of an advantage in InfoSec, right? Because of we're trained to adapt to what's happening. And I think that's one of the strongest characteristics of military people 
because every two or three years we're made to change jobs. We change locations and oftentimes we're throwing into a completely new environment. We have to learn completely new skill sets. It's focused on a new area. It's, it's a new type of command. It's, it's new, new, new. And so we get into that mode of having to reinvent ourselves uh, every two or three years and uh, adapt to the new environment and learn a new set of skills and, and connect with new kinds of people. And so I, I think that is an advantage that military folks can bring to the table. Yeah, that's that's definitely it. I mean, so when you kind of look at the role of a CISO, right, um, being you've been on both the practitioner side, um, you know, PwC, you were probably more on the consulting advising side. Um, now you're back on the practitioner side. When you look at the role of the CISO, what skills do you think a, a good CISO should have in terms of, you know, building his security program across the enterprise? Yeah, so the CISO is an interesting position because it bridges the technical and leadership arenas. It really is a hybrid of both of those things, right? So I've seen straight up business people, business leaders who come in to be a CISO, maybe lack the technical skills and technical understanding. And I've seen very technical people uh, work their way into the CISO role and then struggle sort of with the, what's my relationship with the board? How do I work, reach out across the enterprise? That sort of thing. So for, for people who, who aspire to CISO or are looking to move it into that position, I think looking for balance in your skill set is really important. You have to balance your ability to work across the executive team, work with uh, business people who don't care about the security stuff, think it's not a part of their problem, it's really your problem, go away, don't bother me. Uh, and how do, how do you win their hearts and minds and how do, you, how do you make them realize that supporting the security stuff is really good for the business and good for them? Uh, and then you also have to deal with uh, you know, your firewall engineer that comes up and says, yeah, you know, the beeps and squeaks all don't all connect and we can't, we can't do that boss. And you, you need to be able to go last time I checked, I don't think that's the way firewall worlds work. And maybe there's a better answer. Um, well, okay. But I didn't really want to give you that answer. Okay. But I'm sorry. Let's talk about that. So the ability to understand, you don't have to be a person who's going to write firewall rules. Uh, you don't have to be a person who's going to configure the email system, uh, but you do need to understand how those systems work. Um, one of the things that I brought from the military uh, is being a shipboard engineer, and, and I think you see this in many military um, organizations and, and career fields, it's about the system, right? So how do my systems interconnect? If I take this system down, how does that affect the rest of the system? Right. You know, all of, and we learn that we, we study systems diagrams. And if you're, you know, I was a ship driver, so I learned all about my ship systems. But if you're, I talked to a guy this past week who was a B1B pilot. And I said, Hey, you understand systems because you understand your aircraft, right? And how that systems of systems that makes up that aircraft. What happens if I lose an X? How does that impact the rest of my system? You know, if I lose an engine here, what does that do to me? If it's on the right side or the left side, or I lose an, uh, an auxiliary power unit, what's the impact? You're trained to figure those things out. I think a lot of cyber is, is exactly like that. I have to learn the system of systems that my company's information runs on. 
and understand how we're securing that. And if we take a piece down, what does that do? If I change the configuration here, that has cascading impacts. So understanding that system of system is another thing I think military guys can bring to the table. Yeah, that's... <laughs> when you look at the civilian side of executive leadership in organizations, right? A lot of times the the um, um, executives in an, in an organization can kind of look at um, security as being a, a business function or a compliance function. And so um, w- what are some of the ways you kind of deal with uh, winning over those people into a security program and, and making them understand that it's not only a business and a compliance function, it's also an essential part of the company's sustainability in the marketplace. Yeah, I I think the biggest single factor on your ability to have impact across the executive team is credibility. And, and credibility is an interesting soft word. I think when you're going into those positions, you need to think about your credibility. Uh, you need to not spend your credibility frivolously. Uh, You need to make sure you're building credibility with the team. Uh, That comes from, yes, expertise in your field, uh, listening well and being able to understand their problems and try to see it from the business executive problems, that those interpersonal and interrelationship skills, uh, that has to deal with how you uh, stay on top of things that are going on in the organization. So, you're not surprised so that security isn't causing uh, undue impediments. All of those things, I think, go into the credibility uh, bubble arena. And so I think you need to grow uh, and maintain your credibility in the organization so that when you go to the CIO or the um, CEO, depending on your reporting chain, and say, we need to do X, they, they say, okay, I accept that because Vince came to me and said, we need to do X and he's got high credibility. I think people under appreciate and and a lot of times they try to sell it on the technical side. Hey, we've got, you know, this new vulnerability that came out that's, you know, deep blue and it's this and it's that. And the CEO goes, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) Right. Uh, you, You have to be able to bring it coming forward and saying, we need to make a change because this could seriously impact um, uh, our organization and our ability to get business done. And he goes, okay, what do we need to do? It takes credibility to pull that off. So building credibility points, I think is a critical, uh, skill set. Yeah, that's, that's so important. It, you know, your reputation is, is everything. Um, and, and, and executive leadership, I think a lot of CISOs, you know, the ones that, I I see often struggling are the ones that are, are always you know walking around screaming the sky's gonna fall down the sky's gonna fall down, and and you you kind of end up losing a little bit more credibility. You got to be able to talk to the business, right? You have to be able to uh, build those bridges and and build those relationships. A lot of times we talk about those you know impromptu lunches of uh, you know going to grab some tacos and a beer or you know a burger and fries and 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 being able to just sit on the table and listen to what people have to say and and uh, hear what their problems are and, and kind of understanding how, you know, security can approach those challenges that they're experiencing and really solve them while enhancing the company's security posture are critical. Yeah, that's, I have a monthly lunch with our chief operating officer and probably every two weeks, 
uh, get together informally with our CEO. Yeah, the, those are those are really critical. Let's talk a little bit about kind of uh, let's go into security a little bit and talk about where where do you spend a lot of time as a CISO in security? What aspect of security do you see yourself really spending more time on? And and why is that? And where and 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 then I'll I'll follow that up with a follow up. Is that what you really want to spend time on, or would you rather spend time on something else? Um, right now, I'm spending my time on compliance, and and really that is uh, a, a, an impact of where the Department of Defense is at with cybersecurity right now. Right, we are going through a, an incredible sea change right now in the way the department looks at security. Previously. Uh, self-attestation that you were compliant and no inspection, no audit, no accountability, no nothing, which translated to nobody was really bothering to be compliant. Now we have begun the the five-year process of instantiating accountability. And there are going to be independent audits. You're going to get audited every three years uh, and you need to be ready. And that has caused... uh, uh, you know, a tremendous churn in the marketplace. Uh, I am personally looking to become a certified professional auditor in that so that I honestly, so I can help companies. Uh, I believe that this is really needed. And and honestly, through my, my PWSD time and Procter & Gamble time, I've kind of come to the conclusion that unfortunately we need compliance requirements uh, that are pretty significant in this space in order to really drive companies to take security more seriously uh, and and halt the tremendous transfer of intellectual property from our countries to uh, our country to overseas that has been going on. Uh, and fortunately, a lot of, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the hacking that goes on today isn't ransomware. They're not trying to get your attention. You get ransomware, you know it. Uh, in some ways, ransomware is my friend because everybody knows when the city of Atlanta got ransomware and they're, you know, they're down for two weeks because they, they got hammered. But what is much less well known and much less talked about is that company that had their intellectual property hacked, uh, the fence contractor that had stuff stolen from them. Oftentimes they don't even know. And then even when they do know, they certainly aren't telling anyone uh, because uh, that could have, you know, potentially negative consequences in a lot of different ways. And so it's just much less realized, but we all know that it's happening, right? So I think the, the DOD's moves, the, the DOD CISO, Katie Arrington, I applaud her efforts to uh, really drive this sea change and push accountability into the system. So my, for me, I'm having to spend my time on compliance right now. In some ways, that is good. I try to weave compliance into real security. Yes, I have to be compliant. Uh, yeah, I could be compliant and still not secure if I really want to be. But I think CISOs can use compliance requirements to help build their real security and reduce the risk for their companies. Do you wish you'd spend your time somewhere else? Um, or do you enjoy I, compliance? Are you more of a GRC CISO? Yeah, no, I... Because I am a, I, I did not come up through IT, right? I, I came up, I, I like to say I, I used to uh, play offense and now I coach defense, right? So I, I really didn't come up through uh, IT, configuring firewalls, hands-on cyber stuff, right? But I understand it because 
from my you know degrees, work in the space, et cetera. I understand the system of systems and how all this works together and, and what we, we need to do from a security perspective. I find the compliance piece enables me to drive home uh, controls and changes that we need in order to be more secure. So I like that. So, so I, I define CISOs as the people who come from IT and then you've got the unicorn in there, meaning most most IT CISOs are really smart network system folks, but they're very uh, it's very challenging for them to build those relationships and cross the bridge into the business side. Um, they tend to always be kind of you know siloed in 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 that aspect. And then you've got the GRCC ISOs, people like you who understand business, who understand IT, understand network. Um, you know, they couldn't do it themselves. Like if someone hired, hired you and said, Hey, uh, we need you to engineer this whole thing. You'd probably look at them and be like, yeah, I'm not your guy. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that isn't me. Um, but I can drive strategy. I can drive policy. I can't drive compliance. I can't drive all those things. And those are the GRC CISOs. And we're starting to see that rise, uh, because a lot of boards want the GRC CISO because they realize you can, as long as you understand everything under you, you can hire the right people to do the work. Uh, but very few people are able to communicate across the business effectively and really uh, build that aspect of it. Let me, let me add one thing to that. So uh, I think I'm more technical than what I would call a GRC CIO or CISO. I, the ability to understand IT how these things work together. What is my system of systems? Uh, I think that is really an important piece. So if you're a person who comes from the GRC world or the audit world or the business world, uh, making it a priority so that you understand, I think it's critical for those leaders to be able to look at the IT guy and go, no, that's the wrong answer. No, I agree. I'm not dismissing that. Um, I'm not dismissing that at all. Um, I think that's critical. I think the idea, you can't just know IT on its surface. You got to have some insights into networking and IT. Otherwise, you're really going to be run afoul uh, from a knowledge perspective from the people you hire to run you know, your IT and network. So I agree yeah, with that statement. Right, uh, but, but knowledge love- is different from keyboard, right? I think knowledge is different from keyboard. Um, there's an aspect, it was funny. I saw something on LinkedIn earlier this morning and it was a post and it had a CISO as an entry level position for a company, (laughs) um, uh, 15 years experience, um, as a CISO, but it was an entry level position. The seniority of the position was entry level. And I'm like, either that's a mistake or someone's really off their ball game. Like you're just looking for a scapegoat. Like we need to hire someone. You know, we want a CISO, but we want to pay him. Officer. Right. We we want to we want to pay him 150 grand a year uh, to be our CISO. And you're like, yeah, you're better off just defining this as director of InfoSec and leaving it at, at that at that title. You might be better off that way. Let's talk a little bit about CMMC because I haven't had a lot of guests on the show um, that have kind of wrapped their heads around CMMC. Now, I sit on the board of AFCIA here in Atlanta. So I'm very familiar with CMMC. Um, it's it's part of our chapter support to to uh, you know the government is is kind of helping 
um, a lot of these businesses adopt adapt to CMMC, and CMMC is a very unique regulation. It's a very unique compliance because it's staged based on the, the data you process, based on what you do. There's a level one, level two, level three, level four. Can you explain a little bit to our fellow peers here who may soon be tackling CMMC? What are these different levels and what that looks like for, for each organization and kind of the logic behind it? Yeah, so uh, I'm extremely deep on CMMP right now, uh, probably as deep as, as as anybody who hasn't had auditor training yet. The uh, I would caveat this with for all companies, anybody who's listened to this and, and is interested in C- CMMC, first, have you got your NIST 800-171 basic self-assessment submitted to the Department of Defense? That is a 30 November issue of this year. If you do not have that submitted, the Department of Defense has said they are not going to issue any new contract awards, modifications, et cetera, until that is submitted. So if you're a company and you're thinking about DOD cyber compliance, please start with NIST 800-171 and make sure that you have that basic self-assessment done. Moving on to CMMC. Uh, CMMC, uh, this is now the pilot year for CMMC. Uh, The uh, Katie Arrington has come out and said we plan to do 15 or so contracts that are going to have CMMC requirements, and that's going to affect around 900 contractors from a DID extended supply chain perspective. Uh, The first group of auditors is being trained. They've got 72. Uh, Those guys are starting to come off the pike, but they're going to be focused on that limited number of contracts. So if you're a regular uh, company just looking to get certified, it's probably going to be a challenge for you to get get somebody in to see your company Boy, I am now looking at maybe third or fourth quarter next year, calendar year. Uh, the CMMC accrediting body has said maybe first quarter. I honestly, I don't, I don't think I see that being those kind of guys be just being available out there for you to, for a regular company to go grab. So sometime, uh, probably no sooner than the second quarter next year, I think you'll start to see companies being able to get a CMMC accreditation. So if companies are thinking about CMMC, uh, it's different than this 800-171, which is sort of an all or nothing. CMMC is a maturity model. So they have five levels of maturity. One is the lowest, and that is essentially table stakes going forward with the Department of Defense. Everyone will have to have a CMMC level one outside audit and certification. That's based around uh, the 15 uh, security controls that are in the FAR really the federal acquisition regulation that applies to all federal government. Everybody should be doing that. It's pretty basic and straightforward stuff, but not everyone is doing that. And regardless of whether you're doing it or not, you're going to need the certification. So it's something you should be planning for and, and anticipating no matter where you sit in the DOD supply chain. A uh, Months ago, Katie Arrington said in a, a webinar that I was on, if you mow the lawn for the Department of Defense, you're going to need to be level one. And so, just have that in mind and plan on it. Uh, level two is really a transition level to level three. Level three is where you can handle controlled unclassified information for your company. So uh, controlled unclassified information uh, has a, a definition. And for, unfortunately, it is not well instantiated in the Department of Defense, what CUI is, how, how you market, et cetera. So contractors have problems when their clients aren't aligned to the new rules. Uh, I actually had a government person uh, say to us 
last week, week before last, what's CUI? Um, because we were trying to say, hey, I've got some of your data. This is what it's marked this way. I think it fits in the CUI category. We really need to defend it. Let's have a dialogue about this to make sure we're meeting your requirement. And the answer we got back was, what's CUI? So it's clearly <laughs> work to do, right, to get the, the, the information out to its own people. And in fact, that's one of my, uh, I actually am very close to submitting my feedback on the new draft D4 rules that include CMMC. I got about four pages of uh, comments and questions on it. And uh, one of those is, are you going to hold the DOD accountable for actually doing with CUI what uh, needs to be done because it's very hard for us as contractors to be compliant with the program. If our clients aren't marking CUI, don't know what CUI is, aren't on board with the plan. Um, so I think level three is, um, you know, for me, my simple explanation, and others would argue with this, if you get four official use only documents now, that's probably CUI. There may be some cases where FOUO isn't, but I think the vast majority of cases it is. So if you're used to seeing FOUO slides or getting FOUO information from your client or your prime, you're probably getting CUI. And you probably need to think about being prepared for a level three uh, certification as opposed to uh, a level one. And then finally, you've got levels four and five. Those are really APT oriented. And what the department has said is 0.6% of the defense industrial base is going to have to be level four or five, a vanishingly small percentage of companies. So they, they have um, made it pretty clear they don't think most companies are going to need that level, but that's advanced APT uh, resilience. So thank you for that. I hope everyone took a pen and paper and took some notes. I know I did. Um, and I'll be going back and, and listening to it. So, um, and it kind of taken away from it. Here's my question for you, though. And this is a debate question. It's a, feel free to tell me to, um, to just, it's not relevant. Um, do you feel like industry is going to look at CMMC two, three years from now and kind of be like, okay, all Fortune 500 companies are going to adapt this as part of their maybe supply chain security requirements. Do you see the CMMC kind of spreading across? Kind of like how we saw NIST, right? So NIST was initially kind of brought into the federal space and then enterprise looked at it, the security people looked at it and said, hey, that's pretty good, we're going to take it. Do you see CMMC kind of going through the same evolution? Um, yes, so I think though there's, one, we're already seeing it spread out across the federal government, not just the DOD. So GSA is already asking questions in multi-billion dollar, multi-award IDIQ contracts. Tell me how you're going to be CMMC compliant, which is fascinating. And uh, I think you're going to see Department of Homeland Security and other organs of the federal government adopt it in relatively short order. When you start talking about Fortune 500, I don't think they're going to go that route by themselves, but uh, we could see, and, and there continues to be talk, right, about a federal cybersecurity standard, uh, about uh, uh, updating Sarbanes-Oxley in order to you know, bring it into the 21st century and add some of these cybersecurity requirements to that. So depending on how those, uh, mature, those compliance requirements mature, right, and, and how the laws are developed, uh, I think we will likely see increased use of CMMC or a standard like CMMC is a part of it. Uh, 
Yeah, but CMMC is a very, very smart compliance piece, and I'm never, like, if you would have met me two years ago, Vince, when I started this podcast, one of my first episodes was someone who was a proponent of GDPR and me getting into it for about an hour straight of how dumb GDPR was, and how, to me, and it still is till today, I've said it to people, I've said it to DPOs, I go, GDPR is nothing but a cash grab by failed European nations. Uh, because they can't stabilize their budgets. I go, that's all it is. I go, big. they don't know how to tax big tech companies, so they've come up with a law that allows them to find big tech companies for anything at any point in time, up to 4% of their global uh, revenue, because they can. They were better off putting a 5% tax rate on all um, um, big tech companies, right, and all technology software companies, and letting that be kind of 5% revenue than what they're trying to do here um, with GDPR. Because I feel as a consumer, GDPR gives me nothing. What CMMC does, though, is CMMC is downstream, which is very rare in a compliance aspect. Meaning it's talking about your supply chain. And it's actually asking you to look into your supply chain and certify your supply chain. And that's why I think Fortune 500 companies are going to look at this as kind of being a liability piece. Well, if we're if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. And it also uh, takes the liability away from us and plays it downstream, which requires more people to be uh, cyber uh, resilient and, and have cyber awareness um, um, and, and, and ex- give you kind of the ability to say, you know, in court, you can argue, hey, we're, we're CMMC level two compliant. That's what we require all of our contractors to be. These guys passed that audit. If it's good for the federal government, why is it not good for us? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, um, you know, having Fortune 500 companies just come out and say, well, you need to be CMMC level X to be a part of our supply chain. Uh, that That's an interesting model I still probably feel like it's going to take some regulatory push to get uh, companies moving in that direction. Because as we've seen all along, uh, business executives, and, and maybe this is a factor of the human condition, we, we have trouble assessing the risk for these things that we can't see and put our hands on. Right. Right. I often think about it as, you know, if I had... Um, uh, disreputable looking characters from foreign countries walking through my office spaces, rifling through drawers, you know, continuously walking in and out, looking over your shoulder, blah, blah, blah. The executives would lose their minds and go, oh, my God, we need a security guard at the front door. What do you mean we can't stop these people? We got to find a way to do that. But because and that's what's essentially happening with many companies, Right where you have foreign actors who are wandering through their, their digital highways and pathways in the office and rifling through their files to see if there's anything interesting in there. And we can't see it, so we kind of know what's happening, but we want to turn a blind eye to it. So I think we don't, we don't understand cyber risk well, and it's hard for us as humans to really adapt to the cyber risk um, effectively. So, I, I, again, I think we may need some regulatory push to make that really a reality yeah i i I think you might be right a little bit um unless unless we see the general counsels look at this as a way to um you know fortune 500 fortune 1000 uh, for them it's liability 
right? Um, can I pass this downstream? Um, can I reduce my uh, lawsuit? Can I reduce my um, um, liability on specific issues? And um, can I do it in a way that the court would look upon us favorably? So for example, if I'm using a cloud provider and my cloud provider experienced downtime and then I end up getting sued because of that downtime um, and um, and then I get sued for it, could I get that lawsuit dismissed because, well, here's our policies, here's what we've done, here's CMMC. And so, you know, it's, it's again, I'm going kind of down the road of, of the more progressive way of thinking from a legal perspective. Yeah, and so I, I've got some good, I've sat in with some great lawyers from Fortune 500 companies and had some great conversations along this line over several years, right? I think that would be a harder argument to make when it's my my subcontractor or tiered subcontractor. The the lawyer doesn't see that as that liability is necessarily reflecting on the, the Fortune 500 company very much. Uh, and I have seen them make what I consider to be some extraordinarily poorly taken decisions about that based on the fact that Corporate IT says, we're all good. We're green here. We've got antivirus in a firewall. Show me where I've ever been hacked. We're awesome. Nothing ever goes wrong, <laughs> right? Um, I, I've, got a, I've got a green spreadsheet. In fact, if you look at my um, website or my LinkedIn page, you'll see, is your dashboard zombie green? We used to joke about this in an organization I previously uh had a relationship with, right? Was, oh yeah, the dashboard's all green. It has to be all green. It's all good. We're great. We're zombie green. Yeah, there's a lot of dead bodies behind that green because really we're not doing that. But when we got a green dashboard for the board of directors. Um, I'll give you a great example of that. And I've seen this from a systems perspective and back to our conversation on why systems need to be smart about how systems work and interconnect. Data loss prevention, right? That was a buzzword maybe a few years ago. We're going to get data loss prevention. We're going to get good. I can't tell you how many companies I've seen with data loss prevention instantiations. They've got a green dot on their slide going to the board of directors. We've got data loss prevention and we're good. And when you lift up the technical cover on that, you find the only thing they're looking for are cuss words. And that goes to a file that sits on somebody's desk that nobody ever looks at. So how much, how much risk reduction are you getting from your data loss prevention system? The only risk reduction you get is how the, the CISO looks in front of the board. Otherwise, it's useless. And, and that's un, amazingly common, right? Um, so the, the, the truth you don't want to know is, is what I have often said is the worst problem in the security industry. Uh, we have a ton of executives who don't want to know the truth. Uh, because that will impact my budget. That will make me look bad. That will, that's not the answer I'm looking for. And one of the things about the compliance requirements, and I see particularly in the DOD, and that's, that's sort of where we've been at, right? Hey, wait a minute. Somebody's going to come in and say, I'm an auditor. Show me how you're doing this. Ooh, ouch. That becomes a much harder conversation now. And wait a minute. So i thought I was level three, but you came in and said, I'm not even level one. So now I'm not eligible to receive any DOD contract until I actually start fixing this stuff. Oh, now that's a business risk I can understand. 
Yeah, that is a that's a that's a that's a great point. That's a <laughs> that's a great point. Um, well played, Vince. Really, <laughs> uh, you know it's 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 funny. It's, it's interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to say funny, but it's interesting um, when you think of it like that. Um, what it does to the thought process, right? Of of of, of the business and of like yeah. looking at it from from that perspective. I I often talk about you know the the alert fatigue. Right, the too many red bells that are screaming fire, 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 and, and you talk about the green zombie, and that's that's really interesting. I feel like um, um, I'd, I'd rather have the green zombie, maybe, and maybe that's because I've never had a green zombie, right? Um, really, <laughs> in my career, than the uh, red dashboard where everything becomes dismissive. Yeah, I, I. I, I think that's happening at the technical level. I am. I, I can. I, off the top of my head, I can give you. I can think of two Fortune 500 companies that had a SIM, so security incident and event management. For anybody who doesn't know, that system that pulls together all your alerts, all your logs, and then has rules to write alerts to say, "Hey, this might be a problem. Why is the CEO logging in from China?" Right. That that could be a problem. Let's have a look at that. Um, I've seen multiple SIM instantiations with all. Almost no rules. I've seen at least a couple in Fortune 500 companies with no rules, but I've got a green green dot that says I've got a sim. So there's no alert fatigue there. Um, you know, I have I have had conversations with uh, kids sort of on the front line, going, "Hey, we really we need to do something with the rules here. We've got you know how do we how do we help you move in the right direction?" And he's like, "I we we can't turn the rules on." Uh, because I'm doing six other things, I'm involved in projects, and there's not going to be any more manpower for me uh, to be able to deal with, you know, alerts that come in. So why turn them on? Uh, okay, <laughs> right. So so companies, I think, uh, uh, again, one of the, the the big challenges in this that I'm hitting on is when they make decisions about secure cybersecurity, they think this is a technical issue. I, I need a technical solution and I've got a DLP here and I've got a SIM and I've got, um, gosh, what's uh, pick your latest acronym of choice uh, that that's cool and hot today. Oh, cool. I've got it. So I'm one of the cool kids and we must be good. Unfortunately, uh, all of those require manpower in the background. Really, this is a people issue, not a, a technology issue. Um, I, one of my favorite sayings is uh, special forces have four truths, right? That they've had since their inception. And and special forces truth number one is people are more important than hardware. That is so true in the cybersecurity industry. People are more important than hardware. Give me the right people and free off the shelf download security tools and we'll do way better than having the most expensive security controls on the market with people who don't know how to use them. Yeah, I uh, just did a podcast with uh, Bob Turner, who's the Chief Information Security Officer for the University of Wisconsin and a Navy vet. Great guy. Um, and and you'll, you'll really like it. And one of the things we discussed in, in his episode as well, um, we were talking about COVID-19 and kind of the vendor approach to a lot of CISOs and our budget cuts, you know, you know, even if the business isn't, you know, I always people say like, oh, your company isn't suffering you know, you guys are still doing business. You guys are selling software, whatever the case may be. 
I'm like, yeah, maybe, but our cost of doing business has increased because of COVID, right? I may have had to budget uh, more money for employees to work from home, meaning I've got to reimburse them maybe to upgrade their ho- to higher speed internet. Uh, we may have had to, you know, s- uh, invest money in newer equipment and, and all kinds of stuff. Also, my margins may be lower because I've had to invest in aspects of defending and protecting my company from COVID nineteen. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. like there, there, there's aspects of cost where I've had vendors try to justify to me during this pandemic. Um, well, it looks like you guys are doing well. I mean, your revenue's still there, and I'm like, what? I was like, that that that's really your closing sales pitch. Our budgets are tight, and and my point was, I'd rather c- cut technology and vendors than people, because people are harder to replace than technology. Yes. Good people, good, good people, are people are harder to replace, and it takes you longer, and it costs you more money to find one good person than it is to find one good vendor. And, and those good people, and I think this is very much the special forces model, right? They will find a way to overcome. Right. They will find a way to, to do this in a way that doesn't cost money. Uh, so, I, for example, um, a Fortune 500 company, in my experience, we had uh, we really needed an incident database, right? How are we tracking incidents? What's happening? What, what are we really doing about them? Follow up, all that stuff. Nope, got no money for that. So what did the team do? Team went out and downloaded a, a open source database free and configured it and began to use it. Uh, we would have, would we, would we have rather have had a, a you know a professional solution for this? Sure, uh, but but to your point, the good people made up the difference. Right. I mean, uh, it, to me, one of the things I always preach about is forget the next shiny box. Look at your controls. How often are you auditing your controls that you, that that you're uh, inputting in your different systems and you know it, it's funny I, I you, you smile and i'm like you get it you get it vince like i may not need to buy anything i just may need to send someone to audit the controls we have in place and see are they maximized to our current way of using our network our it and the way we're interacting with technology and if it's not let's upgrade it and fix our controls. And then if we can't fix our controls, then let's look at to buy something to offset that risk based on what that risk is to the organization. Yeah, I, I would advise every company, uh, before you buy the next new toy, maximize the configuration and effectiveness of the tools that you've got. There are so many secure security tools out there. The vast majority of them uh, are operating in the, the 5 to 10% effectiveness range. There's right. a huge amount of additional effectiveness. My DLP story being, you know, great winner sins without rules or or whatever antivirus. Same way, there, there's tremendous ways to optimize your stack. I had a, an example where I went into a company. Uh, McAfee has five levels of aggressiveness, right? Very low, low, medium, high, very high, and medium is their recommended setting. I went into a Fortune 500 company. They were set at very low. Well, we didn't want those security tools to interfere with anything. You know, it could it could hurt something. And I'm like, no, let's let's go through the process. Let's look at where you have the legitimate business solutions that McAfee maybe doesn't like. Let's configure exceptions. Let's run some tests. Uh, we moved that company from uh, very low to high. 
over time. And uh, so they're, they're, they're bought and paid for McAfee suite of solutions was way more effective at reducing risks in their company than it was when we walked in the door. Yeah. And that's... They didn't spend more money on, on the, on McAfee. They did spend more money on us, but uh, you know, that's back to the people aspect, having the right people in there to, to do the job. Yeah. So let me ask you this as we're, we're getting ready to go into my favorite part of the interview, the CISO insight round where you get to go on the hot seat for a little bit, Vince. Um, but what do you think we're doing well as security practitioners today? What's a problem you think that, you know what, we, we can stop talking about this right now. I think we're over this hump. A problem that I think we're, we're over the hump. Or a challenge. Boy, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I think we're doing much better against ransomware today. There's been so much pain on it. Uh, there's better tools out there. Uh, there's better rollback solutions. There's uh, better ways that we're using our backups. Uh, that, that problem certainly isn't solved for everyone. I think the, the capability to solve that problem is, is present in the marketplace. Brilliant. It's time for my favorite part of the show. Folks, we're going to the part where you get to know Vince beyond cyber, the CISO insight round. Here we go, Vince. You're on the hot seat. These are the same six questions that every guest gets on the show. And if you don't know by now, I've got a buzzword graveyard in my backyard. I live in the woods of Georgia. Um, uh, I have a buzzword graveyard. What's the buzzword you bury in my graveyard? Ooh, the buzzword that I carry in your graveyard. Uh, machine learning. Machine learning. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, I should get sound effects here one day, um, like uh, like uh, Stephen Crowder, um, and just have a bunch of ding, ding, and all kinds of bells and whistles for this round. Um, yeah, machine learning's already buried, and I appreciate you for saying that. Um, I think most people don't understand the difference between machine learning and AI. Yep, and there's a difference. Significant. Significant. Um, difference. What's one technology that you think is going to change the way we do cybersecurity? Quantum. Agreed. Completely agreed. I did a, uh, um, I did an entire episode in December of last year with um, um, Chris. Why am I forgetting Chris's last name? He's the chief innovation officer at the CDC. We did an, like, uh, we did like a three-hour podcast. It turned into one of those Joe Rogan podcasts on quantum and post-quantum cryptography, um, uh, putting together a quantum machine, the silicone that's needed, uh, the type of power that's needed, the way you can process data. It was very, um, I want to say it was very apocalyptic because three months, two months later, you know, COVID breaks in and um, and, and, and Chris kind of uh, disappears off the map. But um, but it's a really, for those that are interested in quantum, go back and check out the episode with Chris. I'll link it below in the description of this podcast. Um, if you love quantum, if you want to hear about quantum cryptography, and I promise you it's not a boring conversation. We go down some rabbit holes, but it is fascinating. And Chris, probably one of the 10 smartest people in our country. I mean, I put him up there with Elon Musk. I mean, the guy's just brilliant. He built the entire CDC uh, IT mainframe in the 60s and 70s. So, oh, cool. so, so, so that's the kind of guy he is. 
Um, what's the last book you read? What is the last book I read? Um, boy, I read, I've got H.R. McMaster's uh, latest book on his time as the National Security Advisor. Uh-huh. And, uh, that's what I'm I'm in right now. Uh, I don't remember what the last one I finished was. And that's okay. What's the last movie you saw? Uh, my, my wife and I watched The Hunt for Red October on Friday night. Oh, in honor of Sean Connery, may you rest in, in peace. Connery, yeah. Uh, I, I saw James Bond uh, in honor of John Connery. I, I love The Hunt movie though right yeah i mean i I love the hunt for red october i hate alec baldwin in that movie i thought that was the worst casting of any anything alec baldwin trying to sound russian is just as bad as his trump impression (laughs) okay fair enough um favorite music uh i'm the old time rock and roll guy okay and if is there is there one song that picks you up more than any other? You go, this is my go-to song. Uh, Taking care of business. <laughs> that is a, a veteran song for sure. That is one of those things that you hear on your way back after a, a good mission. Um, it's it. There's something about old rock and roll in uh, in, in 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 the U.S. military that's just synonymous with it, right? It's just it's 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 just that. Um, What's one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, It is uh, driving the adoption of uh, Teams, Skype for Business, collaboration solutions in an effective way. And we're going to see a major change in uh, the way businesses operate based on this. The technology has been there. The capability has been there. People have been reluctant to change their methodologies in order to adapt and effectively utilize uh, the technology that's available. Uh, my, my pet peeve is please turn on your camera, right? We have this in, in having the camera on helps. You can see my expression. I can see your expression. That adds something to the level of conversation. Um, I can see when you're bored and you're looking away and you're, you're handling your email, right? I, that, there's actually goodness in that and it helps us be more effective in our meetings. Uh, companies have learned that now. And so we're going to see knowledge workers across the board who are going to be where they live doesn't matter. And that's going to in- accelerate through the business community. Um, I think also that's one of the economic uh, shifts that we're going to see in this decade. Is it used to be that people would move to San Francisco, New York, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta um, to get a job. Now they can stay in those small community and earn a really good living, which would can afford them. I'd like to call it the 1960s American lifestyle, maybe one yep. working parent, another parent working part-time, um, being able to, you know, uh, uh, raise your family in an old traditional way. Um, in fact, I'm seeing so many people that have left the city. It's fascinating. Um, and, and, and I agree with you. I, th- I agree with that assessment because I think that assessment is going to lead to a, um, America going back to its roots of of running away from the urban industrialized areas and going back to small towns and villages and and townships and you know and so forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dallas, there's no reason to move to Dallas and put up with all that traffic. Uh, there's no reason to you know. There's lots of reasons to leave California. Um, one of the things Tulsa has where I'm where I'm at currently 
they have a remote work program. They will actually give you a bonus to move to Tulsa to work remotely from here. Um, it, it's a really fascinating program. And I think if you look at, for, for example, the cost of living in California and say, wait a minute, I can do everything that I need to do and I can afford a home and uh, I, we've got great schools and, you know, it's a, it's a, a smallish city. Uh, my wife and I joke about the traffic guy on the morning TV and so, well, thank you, Mr. Traffic Guy for, for giving me the green report again this morning that, oh, there's a slowdown on this little bitty piece of road, maybe. <laughs> I, lived <laughs> in, about. I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a year and I loved it. So uh, barely any traffic, great communities, right? Great schools. Um, you know, other than the fact that the city fell asleep at seven o'clock, um, it, it was a great city. Um, you know, if you wanted to get dinner after eight o'clock, you're pretty much stuck to McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Taco Bell, um, you know, and a few 24 hour diners. Place. Right. But but I, I loved it. You know, living now in Georgia on, on the outskirts of the of the suburbs of Atlanta is, is very different for me and, and, and kind of a. Um, almost something that I, I wish I could go back to a small town. Um, you know, I, I, in Colorado, I lived in a very small town where were 200 kids in my graduating class. We all knew each other. Um, and so there was, there was never that, that aspect of, uh, of, you know, a thousand person graduating class. Like what I see today, you go to a graduation ceremony, you know, three speeches, and then you got to start calling names. Otherwise the graduation ceremony is going to take eight hours. Right. Yeah, it went, when we go back to having graduation ceremonies. Yeah, now they do them in Zoom. <laughs> um, Vince, thank you so much for coming back on the program and joining me on CISO Talk. Um, you've been a delight, and it's been uh, very refreshing to have a CMMC conversation here um, on the show, something that we haven't had in a very, very long time. So uh, thank you for your contribution to our community. Thanks for having me on. Folks, um, another episode of CISO Talk next week is Thanksgiving, folks. And so in honor of Thanksgiving, I will not be posting any episodes outside of our Veterans Day, uh, Veteran November series on Thanksgiving Day. We'll be back with a CISO Talk podcast in the first week of December. Enjoy your Thanksgiving Remember to love and be grateful for those that are around you in your holidays, your family, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, and irregardless to what is going on um, with COVID and everything else, um, we live in the greatest country on the planet and we all ought to be uh, grateful for that. So happy Thanksgiving to all of our fans and listeners. Thank you so much for everything. Make sure you comment below and subscribe until next time folks and we'll be back in december to wrap up this year and everyone knows that january 1st i pray to god that it rains so i can go outside and dance in the rain and pray for a 2021 that looks nothing like 2020 folks until then fabulous up party for 2020 yeah i have a deal where i said that on i'm praying to god every single day that it rains on january 1st so i can go outside and dance in the rain and welcome 2021 right with rain um, and if not, then I may have to uh, fly somewhere where it's, it is going to be raining on January 1st so that I can do my rain dance and say, wash away 2020, no nothing. Let us 2021 be the year of uh, community, mankind, love, peace, and tranquility. Absolutely. Folks, that's it. 
Signing off. Till next time, stay cyber safe. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com. 